Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you this morning. In case you think that that joke about the Eagles was just a joke, there they are, right on my water bottle today, warning me how sad tomorrow night might possibly be. I've spent a lot of time over these last few weeks thinking about time. I think most of us have. It's the nature of things. It's the end of one year, the beginning of a new year. We think about what it means to learn from the past. We're excited about what might happen going forward. We think about time, what it means to be a people bound by time. We are. We're bound by the calendar. The calendar reigns. It rules for us. It tells us what we're supposed to do on a particular day. If it's a Tuesday, we're either going to school or we're going to work. If it's a Saturday, we're getting stuff done around the house. Maybe we're sleeping in. If it's a Sunday, we're going to show up in church. The calendar runs our lives. We do what the calendar and the clock tell us to do. And especially in a month like January, it's a time for us to enjoy weather. We got to enjoy that last week, so for most of us, this is our first time in worship in 2024. We get to look forward to what might be coming throughout this year. But while all of us as creatures are bound to some form of calendar time, as Christians, we have a different kind of time, kingdom time. We call this the liturgical calendar, and I've become fascinated over the last few years by the liturgical calendar. We all just experienced the liturgical calendar together. Uh, We went through it by doing Advent together, and then we celebrated Christmas. And here, last this past Sunday, it was the end of Christmastide. Some of you may have grown up with the 12 days of Christmas I did as a kid. My mom comes from Wales, and so she insisted that we would have all 12 days of Christmas. We would celebrate for those couple of weeks. But that ends with Epiphany Sunday. That was this past weekend. And we enter into a period on the liturgical calendar called Ordinary Time. This is a Sunday in ordinary time. It's everyday time. And our lives are lived in ordinary ways, in ordinary time. Now I'm hearing the same popping you're hearing. Do we want to just use this? Let's just go to the pulpit mic. I'm not going to move around. So I know Sam likes to walk. I can't walk like that. So we'll just go to the pulpit mic. I read a book recently by a man named James K.A. Smith. It's called How to Inhabit Time. A real fun read about time for about 150 pages. I'm sure that's thrilling to all of you. But he, he talks about the liturgical calendar as a form of timekeeping, spiritual timekeeping. It calibrates who we are by positioning how we understand who God is. We, we rehearse the story of who Jesus is throughout the liturgical calendar. It helps us to understand that we do things differently as Christians, as kingdom people. We don't, do this, we don't do things, we don't see the world the same way as everyone around us. We have this liturgical calendar that even guides how we think about God. And so we picture Jesus in the manger, in the whole lead up to Christmas Eve. 
In just a few weeks, we'll leave ordinary time and we'll move into the time of Lent. And we'll think about Christ's work on earth that culminates in his passion, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. The entirety of our being is, is aided by a liturgical calendar that some of us use, some of us don't use, but I found it a helpful tool to, to reorient how I think about time. That time begins with Christ and ends with Christ. But then there's these in-between times, these ordinary times, where we live the most of our lives. And it can be a little jarring when we come out of the Christmas season and all the celebration, all the lights. We took down, finally, our Christmas decorations after Epiphany. We're late to that. If you still have yours up, you're really late to that. And take down the decorations, it's okay. You put them up again next year. But it is a letdown, because now you're like, oh, well, it's back to regular life, ordinary life again to go back to the same routine, and then all the pressures of the world that you were able to ignore for a few weeks because it was the Christmas season, they all come crashing back in, and now the strain of jobs and the strain of school come back. The family tensions that you were able to pretend weren't there for a couple weeks, they find themselves right back there. And those questions about the future, they're back. And it's a political season, so all the ads are showing up, and there's global concerns. Everything, all of the ordinary life, comes flooding back in. It's ordinary time, and this is how we live our lives. But here's the question that I have for us today. How ought we think about Jesus during ordinary time? It's a question that I've wrestled with ever since I taught through the book of Revelation a couple years ago. What is our vision of Jesus? How do we think of him when we close our eyes? How do you think of Jesus? When you, when you close your eyes and say, I'm going to think about Jesus for a second, who comes to mind? For some of us, it is the baby in the manger. For others of us, it's Jesus on the cross. Or maybe it's a particular story of Jesus at the Sea of Galilee or walking a dusty road from Jericho to Jerusalem. But all of us, when we close our eyes, we think, okay, this is who Jesus is. A, a picture comes to mind. We have a vision of that's Jesus. What I want to propose to you today is that we might benefit greatly from seeing Jesus in our mind's eye during these ordinary times, not primarily as he was, but as he is today. To picture Jesus as he actually is right now. To do that, we turn to the book of Revelation for help. Revelation chapter 1 is going to be our text. I'm going to read for us a few verses. Revelation chapter 1. Verses 9 through 20, if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to read along. And then as I preach, I'll be referencing these passages, and those will also come up on the screen. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, 
Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would use it now to speak to us, to encourage us, to challenge us, if necessary, Lord, even to convict us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us ears that are able to hear, hearts willing to obey your word. We pray that you would encourage us. Help us to have a vision of Jesus that propels us through this year, that helps us to be disciples known for joy and love and hope. Be with us now as we study your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. These first couple of verses of John, or of Revelation, give us a snapshot of what's happening in the life of John when he writes this book. The setting of the book of Revelation is the mid-90s. Domitian is on the throne. He's the emperor of Rome at the time. And a few years before this, about 86 or so, he has built himself a, a temple to his own name that he might be worshipped by the Roman people, and he's built it in Ephesus. Well, Ephesus happens to be where John the Apostle lives. He's lived there on and off throughout his ministry. It's his home base. And John surely would have opposed the building of a temple in the name of the emperor, that the emperor would be worshipped as God. John was a leader in the church, and so it would not be surprising if he made his displeasure known. Well, we know that throughout Domitian's reign, he decides that he wants to turn his murderous rage, and he was a murderous, superstitious, paranoid man, he wants to turn that rage against the Christian church, and he, he institutes one of the only empire-wide persecution campaigns against the church. He decides that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to prison or you're going to die. Scores are killed, scores are ripped away from their families, scores are locked in prison, scores are exiled. 
We know from Tertullian and others in church history that the Apostle John wasn't spared. That he too would have been arrested in the 90s by Domitian. He was tortured. We're not exactly sure how. Tertullian says he was boiled in oil. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that after the torture, he's exiled and he's sent to an island called Patmos. Now, Patmos was one of the islands that the Roman Empire had identified as a suitable place for exiled prisoners. They were basically penal colonies. And so he goes to this penal colony, but it's not just a desert place. It's been built up some. This is from a Christian archaeologist. He says that in the Roman period, Patmos was not an uninhabited, deserted prison colony, but it had a harbor, it had a town, and then listen to what else was on this island. It had a temple to Artemis, a temple to Apollo, we think it might have had a temple to Dionysus, and a temple to Aphrodite, all four houses of worship to various gods in the Roman pantheon. It also had a gymnasium, it had a hippodrome or a stadium where they would have gladiator-type fights. They built a society on this penal colony, but that is what it was. It was effectively a prison with all of these worship centers to false Roman gods. And here's John, exiled to the island of Patmos separated from all the people that he loves, knowing that the churches that he has cared for and preached to are filled with people who are mourning, who are afraid, who don't know what's coming next. And now he can't help them anymore because he was there. He was ministering with them. He was caring for them. But he's been ripped away. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. He is alone amongst a bunch of people who don't see the world the same way, who don't think the same way, who certainly don't worship the same way. He is suffering. He is in exile. He is in tribulation. Notice the way John puts it. I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering. Other translations literally use the word tribulation here. I'm your brother in the faith, and I am your companion in the suffering. I've been exiled, but I'm still with you in this. I am hurting, John is saying. He is not writing the book of Revelation from a place of ecstasy. He's writing it from a place of profound pain. But on the Lord's Day, at this point, we've already moved from worshiping on Saturdays to worshiping on Sundays as the Christian church. So on the Lord's Day, he's, he, he gets away from everyone and everything. Tradition tells us that he goes to a cave about a mile from where the harbor is that would have taken him and dropped him off there on Patmos. He gets away and he worships the Lord. Alone, but worshiping. And it's in this time of worship on the Lord's Day that Jesus shows up. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here we see that he's not been exiled for anything other than preaching Christ. This is why he's suffering. This is why he's going through what he's going through. But he does so willingly because 
He is a companion in not just the suffering, but also the kingdom and the patient endurance. One of the great New Testament scholars, G.K. Beale, points out that in this passage, there's only one article. It's not companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance. No, it's just all one thing in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance, which teaches us that in order to have the kingdom, we have to walk through times of suffering. And to be a part of the kingdom is to patiently endure times of suffering. And I can only imagine what John's thinking at this time. What am I going to do? This is it. He doesn't know that a couple years later he'll get released under the next emperor. He doesn't know that. He just knows that he's going to be there on this island. And he might die there. He's in his 80s. He doesn't know what's coming. He's suffering. And I can imagine that that suffering impacts his worship. Because you see, when we come into worship, we don't have to come into worship and pretend like everything is okay, that life is just fine. We can bring our authentic, pain-riddled selves to the Lord and use them to cry out. Our pain can inform our worship in beautiful, marvelous ways because God invites us into that honest relationship that is centered around worship. So I can imagine John worshiping in the Spirit, in the Lord's day, crying out. And as he's doing so, he hears a voice. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I can imagine that John might be asking the question, is this it? Am I done? Was that the end of my ability to serve the church of Jesus Christ? And Jesus shows up and says, I have more work for you to do. I know you're in pain. I know what you're going through. I can't imagine what you are facing in your own lives. We just heard today of someone who lost their home in a fire. The pain, the tribulation, the hardships that we go through. Jesus showed up to John when he was in that place and said, I'm not done using you yet. I still have work for you to do. In John's case, it was to write these letters. So John's there, he's worshiping, he's hurting, he's separate from his people. He's just been told, all right, I have work for you to do. But then Jesus doesn't just immediately launch into the letters. It would have made a lot of sense just from a a writing perspective to say, okay, well, there's our introduction. Jesus wants John to write these letters to these seven churches. The seven churches are listed in the order that you find in in, in the second and third chapter of Revelation. We could have moved right to it. Just said, all right, let's get to work. What is it that Jesus has to say to the churches? But John doesn't immediately grab a pen. John turns to look and see speaking I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me and this is what John saw when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest the language here 
is important. He sees someone as a son of man. As a son of man. That's a king title in the Old Testament. We, we miss it as we read through our New Testament today, but as you go through these verses, 9 through 20, there are actually nine Old Testament references from six different books. Nine Old Testament references from six different books. Ezekiel, Exodus, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Daniel, and Isaiah are all mentioned in these few verses. And this picture of a son of man, that comes from Daniel. And in Daniel, the son of man that Daniel sees is not just some person, but he is the same as the Ancient of Days, the creator of all things, God himself. This is a divine, kingly person. I saw one like a son of man, Daniel said. And John says the exact same thing. When I turned around, I see these lampstands. We'll get back to them in a minute. But among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. A divine king is standing before him. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. That's priestly garment. So not only is this a divine king, but this is a divine priest king who stands before him. And so John's just been given this task. I want you to write some letters to these churches. And these seven churches, they represent the whole of the church throughout time. From the first century to the 21st century, people have understood that these seven churches represent not only actual churches in history, but also all churches throughout history and around the world. Not only is John given the task of writing a letter to the church, but he turns around and he sees the one who's called him to do the task. Because before John can go about doing the work Jesus has given him, he needs to have a clear vision of who Jesus is. A vision of Jesus precedes our ability to serve Jesus well. We need a renewed vision of Jesus. John, in this time of suffering and in this time of pain, he couldn't just keep going on what he experienced before. He needed this renewed vision of Jesus. Jesus says, before I put you to work, I want you to see who I am. And he shows up in all of his glory and all of his power. We don't have time this morning to get into every detail of what Jesus looks like. All of them refer back to Old Testament visions of God. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth with a sharp, double-edged sword, his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. You hear a voice like a trumpet. But maybe to John it had a familiar twang to it. He'd spent so many years with Jesus. And he turns to see who is this one who's speaking to me. And he is confronted with the whole entire glory of Christ. Unvarnished. Unveiled. Jesus as he is. And the Jesus that John saw on the island of Patmos is the same Jesus we worship here this morning. 
I don't know about you, but until I really wrestled with this passage and sat and meditated on this passage, when I closed my eyes and thought of Jesus, I didn't think of this. But this is who he is right now. Filled with glory and power, ruling from on high. That's our Jesus. And, and we, can, we can keep looking back at Jesus in the manger, and that's good, but all of that glory is veiled in the manger. That's the point of the incarnation. And we can look at Jesus on the cross, and we can see his suffering for our sins. But all of that is him handing over, entering into what we call a state of humiliation, being humiliated for our sake. But as he is today... As he is now after his resurrection and ascension, this is who he is. This is who we worship. This is who we follow as disciples. Our vision of Jesus is far often far too small. When John was in a time of profound need and suffering, he needed Jesus like we all do. But the Jesus who showed up was not a carpenter from Israel. The Jesus who showed up was God most high in all of his glory and power. Brothers and sisters, when you need Christ and you cry out to him, understand who you're crying out to. You are crying out to the glorious Son of God who spoke creation into existence, who defeated death on the cross through his resurrection. You speak to the glorified Christ. Remarkably, this isn't John's first time seeing Jesus this way. He's glimpsed this, maybe not in his fullness, but he got to glimpse this on the Mount of Transfiguration. You can understand now maybe why the disciples, when they saw Jesus transfigured before them, said, we don't know what to do in this moment. And Peter opened his mouth and said something stupid. Well, John's response isn't to say something stupid. It's the response that each and every one of us would most likely have when presented with that glorious vision of Christ. He fell on his face. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Yeah. That is the appropriate response. To fall at the feet of Jesus. Perhaps John thinks this is it. I was right. I'm supposed to write some letters. I don't quite understand that, but I'm seeing the glory of Christ. And I know, because I know my Old Testament, that anyone who sees the glory of Christ is dead. They can't survive this. So I'm, I'm going home. I'm done. My ministry is over. And I fell at his feet as though dead, John says. But look at Jesus. Gentle, generous, kind, even in his glory and power. He placed his right hand on me, touches John. It's a familiar touch. Do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you've seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
when Jesus shows up, he puts his hand on John and he says that most familiar command, a command that's repeated over and over and over again in the scriptures. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. There's much in this world that can make us afraid. It's changes in our lives, transitions, changes in the world. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Why? We can honestly, truly say, my fears are founded. I have real, actual fears. And you're telling me not to be afraid. There are actual scary things in the world, scary situations. If you turn on the news or you listen to the people who are running for office, they all tell us that we need to be afraid. Some of us are saying that we Christians especially need to be afraid. And Jesus is saying, don't be afraid. Why? Because Jesus walks among the lampstands. And the lampstands, according to this final verse, are the church. Because in this world, Jesus has chosen a side. And he has chosen the side of his church. So that when the fullness of the Roman army and the wrath and might of the Roman emperor are arrayed against John, Jesus shows up and says, that's nothing compared to me. I am glorious and powerful and I am with my church. No matter what the world may throw at it, no matter what the evil one may throw at it, I am with my church. And so as we go through this world, as we suffer, as we taste tribulation, because we're people of the kingdom and we are called to patiently endure, we are called not to fear because Christ is with us throughout it. John was at his lowest point and Jesus shows up and says, I'm with you, be not afraid because I am among the lampstands. He is with his people no matter what we may be facing. And he says, I am the one who holds the keys of life and death. He defeated death. He rose again. He is the living one. He says, I, I have the power of life and death. Domitian thinks he has that power. World powers think they have that power. I have that power, Jesus says. I have your life. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I am among the church. And so for all of us who are living life in these ordinary times, with our ordinary problems that can feel so extraordinarily painful and difficult, as we walk in ordinary days with ordinary pains and ordinary sorrows and ordinary joys and ordinary triumphs, what we have to ask ourselves is, what is our vision of Jesus? Who is the Jesus that we believe is with us? Who is the Jesus that we are worshiping? And I exhort you this morning, brothers and sisters, to keep this picture of Jesus from Revelation 1 at the forefront of your mind. For 2024, think of Jesus as he is, in all of his glory, in all of his power. And my prayer is that that renewed vision of Jesus would encourage you 
on dark days. That it would strengthen you to endure whatever tribulations come your way. And that that vision of Jesus would inspire you to follow him day after day after day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that in your word you reveal to us just who our Jesus is. Yes, he's the one who took on flesh for us. Yes, he lived the perfect life for us. Yes, he died for our sins. Yes, he rose again. But the story does not end there. Father, we thank you that you give us this glimpse just as you gave our brother John, so long ago, we received this glimpse of who Jesus is now in all of his glory and splendor and might and power. And I pray that this vision of Jesus would evoke awe in us. Would we be amazed at who our God and Savior is? Help us, Father, to fall in love with your Son all over again. Holy Spirit, keep our eyes trained on Jesus as he is, that divine priest king who reaches out and touches us and says, do not be afraid. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.